In Old Testament times, God manifested himself in many different ways. Sometimes he appeared as the angel of the Lord. Sometimes he came in the form of men or simply by an audible voice. Other times he used natural phenomena such as the burning bush to Moses or the smoke, the thunder, and the lightning at Mount Sinai or the fire that consumed Elijah's offering. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to experience God in that way? To have him appear to you or to speak to you in a miraculous manifestation? Well, guess what? He has. He has in his word. And uh, all of these revelations from God are here in his word. They're no less impactful than they were when they happened historically. And they speak to us just as clearly today as if God audibly or visibly manifested himself to us. But the patriarchs, like Abraham, did not yet have God's word, so God had to reveal himself to them in undeniable ways. And so far, we have seen that God has spoken to Abraham on four occasions. He has called him to the land of Canaan. He's promised to give him that land, to make of him many descendants that would eventually evolve into nations, and that the whole world would be blessed through his seed. Yet these promises had not yet reached fruition after Abraham had been in the land for 24 years. Now what is he to make of God's promises that seem to have no hope of completion? Well, our text today unravels more revelation from God concerning his will to Abraham. To this point, all God has required of him is faith, to take him at his word. And even though it seems like nothing is ever going to happen, he needs to persist in that faith. We've seen that faith has been up and down. Uh, He's tried to work out God's purposes on his own terms that miserably failed. God has assured him repeatedly that the promise of descendants will be fulfilled and Abraham simply has to hold to that truth. But now as we come to chapter 17, as God is about to reiterate and expand upon his covenant, Abraham is given certain responsibilities. And those who are brought into covenant of faith with God looking forward to the fulfillment of his promises, are required to walk with him and to be blameless. And as they are marked by a desire to obey his every word, they will experience the fullness of joy uh, of God's promises even before those promises fully take place. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, once again, uh, we're thankful for these stories of old that are often a challenge to faith. We know that Abraham struggled uh, to maintain his trust in you, but Lord, he prevailed. 
And Lord, he's even commended for that faith in the book of Romans and Hebrews. Lord, help us to persist in our faith and our trust as well. And Lord, take up the responsibility of a person who is saved by walking with you each and every day. And Lord, uh, looking for your help to make us blameless in that walk. Encourage our hearts as we look into the life of Abraham once again. In Jesus' name, amen. The word covenant takes central stage in the speeches of the Lord in chapter 17. It has occurred only one time previous to this chapter. That was back in uh, chapter 15, verse 18. And in that covenant uh, situation, Abraham had no responsibilities. Everything was coming from God as a promise. But now, as we come to chapter 17, we see the term covenant repeated 13 times, and God lays out now expectations upon Abraham as he enters into the finalization of this covenant. And it seems that it's a little bit more of a conditional nature uh, to the agreement. And note the structure here, if you will. In verse 4, the Lord says, as for me, this is what I'm going to do. This is my part of the covenant. And then if you look down at verse 9, God said to Abraham, as for you, these are your responsibilities. And then down in verse 15, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife. So each person is brought into this covenant And each person has a role to play in it. So the first thing we want to look at this morning in verses 1 through 8 is that the Lord fulfills covenant promises to those who faithfully walk with him. And we see the Lord comes and he has an expectation for Abraham in verse 1. We're told when Abraham was 99 years old, The Lord appeared to Abram. So the Lord appears to him 13 years down the road from the previous chapter. He's now 99 years old. He's past the age where he is able physically to father children. So do you think that he might have been thinking over these 13 years of Ishmael's growth that maybe Ishmael was the promised seed after all. Yes, God had made it fairly evident that that was not the case, but what's Abraham supposed to think now, as he is too old to have children, his wife's too old to have children, she would be 89, she's still barren. So the Lord comes at this very important juncture, and he reasserts his promise, and also the nearness of its fulfillment, which would certainly encourage this couple. We do not know in what manner the Lord appeared to him. We're not told here whether it was a visible manifestation, which the word seems to indicate, or if it was just the audible voice to Abraham. What we do know is that God makes himself known to him in a new name that of Almighty God, which in the Hebrew is El Shaddai. 
And we're not, again, sure of the etymology of this name. Uh, Expositors have different ideas about it. But it seems to be associated with God's mighty power to do anything and also his sovereignty over all things. It occurs 48 times in the Old Testament. Interestingly, 31 of those times in the book of Job and only six times in Genesis. But its usage in Genesis is always in the context of fruitfulness, that he is the source of fertility and life. And he is the God who can make the barren fruitful and fulfill his promises. So now he reveals himself to Abraham and Sarah, who are beyond the point of being physically fruitful, to reassert his promise to him to them. Now, the Lord gives a twofold command to Abraham, which basically outlined his responsibility to God. He says, walk before me and be blameless. Now, these commands can be taken separately or consequently, and if the latter, it would, uh, it would read, if you walk before me, you will be blameless. And of course, there is a sense in which that is true as well. <clears throat> so what does it mean then to walk with God? So far we've had two men in the Old Testament that are qualified by that statement. Enoch walked with God and Noah walked with God and was perfect in his generation or blameless. Now we have a third man whom God says, you need to walk with me. So this means to order your whole life in relationship to God. What you say, what you think, what you do, how you live should be in conscious attachment to what God says, his ways, your relationship with him. One commentator made this statement, to orient one's entire life to his presence, promises, and demands. That's how you're supposed to live. Now, in this way, you will be blameless. Now, the word perfect is used there in the KJV, but this does not mean sinless perfection. This word is associated with the idea of wholeness, completeness, or fullness uh, in your life, in your walk with God. A good word to translate there would be the term integrity, which speaks of singleness of purpose. In other words, it's your complete purpose to walk in such a way that you're pleasing to the Lord. Uh, A life that's above reproach because of your following him. Uh, Kylan Dalish's commentary uh, uh, makes a good point here. Just as righteousness received in faith was necessary for the establishment of the covenant, that's chapter 15, so a blameless walk before God was required for the maintenance and confirmation of the covenant, which is happening here in chapter 17. Now, of course, the Spirit of the Lord enables us to walk with him and be blameless in our generation. And those who, who seek to obey the Lord's commands will experience the fullest of his promises in the new covenant generation. Now, let's take a look here at how the Lord expands his promises in verses 2 through 8. 
Now, although Abraham now has some responsibilities in this covenant relationship, the covenant is still based on God's grace. Notice it says in verse 2, God says, and I will make my covenant between me and you. The verb to make there actually is to give. I will give my covenant to you. This occurs six times in the Lord's speeches here, and it indicates that the covenant is according to God's grace, not man's works. It is by grace that Abraham has come into faith And it's by grace that he will walk with God and be blameless. The same is true in our day as well. Now, Abraham's response to God's revelation is appropriate. Look at what he says here. Okay, the Lord says, I'll give you my covenant and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, this is kind of just a, uh, a, a, a simple statement introducing what God's going to say a little later and expand upon it. But in verse 3, as the Lord appears to him, we're not sure what manner this was, Abram fell on his face and God talked with him. So Abram takes the posture of humility and awe and respect. He falls down, perhaps on his knees, and puts his face to the ground uh, with his hands down. And this is in reference uh, reverence to the Lord. And that should really be our attitude as the Lord reveals himself to us in his word. We don't physically bow down to the word of God, but mentally, spiritually, inwardly, we need to reverentially and humbly respect and obey God's word. We should have the same attitude that Abraham is displaying here, bowing down before the Lord. Now, the Lord goes on to say, in verse 4, stipulating his part of the covenant, what he's going to provide. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. That is the central key issue. He will have uh, many descendants. The fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is being passed down from generation to generation, comes to Father Abraham. Now it's going to blossom. It's going to expand uh, to become many nations. Now, Abraham is a father at this time. But his son Ishmael is not the son of promise. Uh, Abraham will father many nations. The children that come from Ishmael, well, they can be traced back to Abraham. Later on, the sons of Keturah will be traced back to him. Uh, The Edomites from Esau, the brother of Jacob, uh, we could expand this even to modern-day uh, Arab nations. But Israel is the line of promise. And this promise comes to a man who's a 100 years old almost. So the tension of faith is still playing out in this chapter. Is the promise God stated in the first place ever going to develop? Now, in addition to a father of many nations. The Lord states here for the first time 
that he will make nations of you in verse 6, and kings shall come from you. Interestingly, if you back up the, the, the first part of verse 6, I will make you exceedingly uh, fruitful. <clears throat> Actually, that's exceedingly, exceedingly in the Hebrew text. So the Lord is uh, uh, adding the idea here that this is, this is something that's going to be immense. It's the fullest it could possibly be as far as a promise from the Lord. But kings now are added to the thought here. And of course, as you think uh, in the future, there are going to be kings of Israel, kings of Judah, and even other nations. Kings are going to be associated with Abraham. Uh, For instance, Ishmael is going to have 12 sons. They are going to be princes. So uh, it expands out to this idea of leadership, but the chief heir of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Then the Lord goes on, and he mentions here uh, something that has not been previously mentioned, that this is a perpetual covenant. It is everlasting in nature. And this expands the meaning of the covenant beyond the mere temporal The future offspring of Abraham has a spiritual connection to all those who come to faith in Christ. And Paul draws that parallel in Romans chapter 4, where he calls Abraham the father of us all, meaning the father of those who come to Christ in faith. Now the Lord goes on to say, that I will be a God to you and your descendants after you at the end of verse 7. So here we have the concept that the Lord is going to be Abraham's God and the God of those who descend from him, and uh, he's going to be their God. They're going to be his people. Now that, as it develops, has a conditional nature to it. If Abraham and his descendants walk with the Lord and they continue in obedience to the Lord, then the Lord will respond to to them in blessing and he'll respond to their faith. But if they fail, if they fall away from that condition, if they no longer trust the Lord, if they no longer walk with him, if they walk after the idols of the land, well, then the Lord has to withdraw his blessing And actually, he may have to deal with them very harshly, and we know historically that indeed does take place. And then the Lord mentions specifically the issue of the land. Everything's been about the descendants, which is the thing that's really on Abraham's mind right now. But in the last part of verse 8, he says, uh, or in verse 8, I give you, there's that word give again, this is grace, Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, a foreigner. Uh, Everybody else around you is a Canaanite. All the land of Canaan, he mentions it specifically as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So again, he brings out these different aspects of his part of the covenant, what he is going to do for Abraham and his descendants. Now, these are stipulations in the Abrahamic covenant thousands of years ago. So how does this relate to us who are not under uh, the law? 
We're under the covenant of grace, the new covenant. Well, there are a lot of uh, parallels here. First of all, if you're going to enter a covenant with God, you must enter it by faith, by trusting God. Abram would never have come into that covenant if he had not believed God in the first place. We do not enter the new covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ if we don't exercise faith in him. Many nations are promised to come from Abraham. And you think of the church today, how many millions have entered the new covenant since the Lord Jesus uh, brought into effect that covenant. And uh, the people who have come into that covenant have come from every nation, every tribe, every language uh, in the last uh, two millennia of church history. We think of the term kings. Well, I don't know how many kings have come to know Christ. I'm sure that some have. But the church is referred to in the New Testament as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests and kings. So we are kings in the new covenant. He mentions that this is going to be an everlasting covenant. Well, all those who come to faith in Christ are given the gift of eternal life, everlasting life. Believers have become the sons of God, the children of God. So he is our God. He's our father and we're his people. And finally, we will inherit a new land. It's not going to be necessarily a physical land. Heaven's our eternal home. But the Lord also promises that one day he will destroy the current heaven and earth and he will create for his people a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness shall dwell. So all these aspects, stipulations of the covenant given to Abraham are ours today through faith and the Lord Jesus Christ, only in a completely spiritual uh, aspect. Now, let's move on. The second thing we want to see here is that God expects his people to keep his covenant. Verse 9, God said to Abram, as for you. Okay, now we're moving on to what God expects from Abraham, what his responsibilities are. As for you, you shall keep my covenant. And uh, Abraham and his descendants are to observe this uh, aspect of the covenant, to guard it, to heed it. It's an obligation God has given to him and his descendants. If they fail in keeping the sign of the covenant, well, they're going to be in danger of being cut off from it. Uh, In that paternal culture... Daughters and wives were under the authority of fathers and husbands. So uh, as the husband or the father entered into this covenant, they also entered in as a member of the family. Their relationship to the father or the husband brought them into this situation, but they too are expected to live by faith. Now the sign of circumcision was an outward symbol of their inner faith and coming into that covenant promise. However, the symbol is not the substance. Faith is the substance. The symbol of it was the rite of circumcision. And there's always a danger 
that the symbol is eventually viewed as the substance. And so really, that removes faith from the equation. People today can be baptized, which is supposed to be a symbol of your relationship to Christ, and still not be saved. They put their faith in the symbol, not what the symbol is supposed to represent. The same is true of communion. Communion is a symbol of our ongoing relationship with God and our thanksgiving of what Christ has done to save us. But some people participate in the communion. They have no idea what it even really means. So it never can be uh, uh, a sign, cannot be the uh, significance or the substance. It is simply a symbol of something spiritual in nature. Now, let's take a look then at the sign of the Abrahamic covenant that was the symbol of relationship to God, of course, a faith relationship. Abraham is given this information. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. So this is to, to be ongoing. Here's the first instance of it, but it's to be perpetuated in the future. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, an outward sign in the flesh. Every male child in his household, every slave that was brought, anybody who's related to Abraham in that household has to undergo this particular rite as a sign of their agreement to the covenant, their trust in the covenant, their relationship to God in that covenant. And it's interesting that the term covenant is taken from a verb meaning to cut, the idea of cutting a covenant with someone. And uh, if you're unwilling to come into the covenant by being cut in the flesh, then you will be cut off from your people. So there's that kind of a wordplay going on in here. Uh, and this meant uh, if you were not willing to undergo this right, now, of course, these would be the adult men. And if there were children too young to, to make a decision, well, the decision was made for them in faith by their parents. So it's not really the, the child that's uh, uh, required at this point because they can't make a decision. The family does it for them. But to refuse this was to reject the word of the Lord, was to reject coming into that covenant by faith. And if that was the case, then you were in danger of being cut off, as verse 14 says, from his people because you broke my covenant. You didn't believe, you didn't follow through uh, with the process, and therefore you're in grave danger of being cut off from the promises and even to the point where you could be physically cut off by the Lord and premature death or even execution by the, uh, the covenant family. Now, let's again take a look at the meaning of the sign. And again, this is related to the promise of descendants. So in this way, the males who would come from Abraham they're the ones who will carry on the progeny 
the descendants that God has promised to him. And this particular rite or operation was a symbol of their consecration to God and being a progenitor of the descendants of faith. But even more, it was to represent their faith, their loyalty, and their love for God. That was the substance of the symbol. Although one could be circumcised on the outside, that sign could not be a replacement for faith. The spiritual indication is what was being emphasized. Now, I want to bear this out. Turn over, if you will, to Deuteronomy. Now, we're going hundreds of years down the road, but we're seeing an interpretation of what all this meant as far as the relationship with God. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and don't be stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, you shall not... You sh- who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. And it goes on to describe the relationship here. So he's talking uh, that this is a sign of something that goes on inside of you, something that goes on in your heart. And then if you flip over to chapter 30 and verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So here again is something that God is doing, kind of the idea of, of sanctification, as the Lord is, is uh, uh, making you come, come into proper relationship and helping you to walk with him and be, be blameless. And it has to do with your soul, with your heart, what you're like on the inside. Paul bears this out in Romans chapter 2 and also Colossians chapter 2 verse 11. We won't go there, but this is what he interprets this all to be. So that's what makes it applicable to us today. That our hearts are to be separated unto God. We keep the new covenant through a circumcised heart, which includes separating ourselves from sin, pursuing holiness, obeying God's commands, and serving him with our lives. So this is our responsibility, our cooperation with God, and our sanctification. Now, thirdly, the Lord keeps his promises even in the face of insurmountable obstacles. Verse 15, we turn our attention to Sarah. She comes into play here. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Now here is specifically stated that a son will come from your wife, Sarah, undeniable, she's 89, she can't have children, but she's going to have a child. And that's going to be her part in this whole thing. And as this happens, 
Well, then the blessing extends to her because I will bless her. She'll be the mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So this is her share in this whole situation. And of course, uh, she comes to faith in this as well. Uh, And the sign of these promises given to this couple are signified in a change of name. God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Abram means exalted father and may likely allude to Terah, Abraham's father. And that new name speaks, uh, or the old name speaks of an exalted heritage, if you will. Abraham means father of nations and it's a sound play on the meaning. In other words, in Hebrew, Abraham sounds like the words father of nations. And now that would be something that would signify in his mind that God had power to do that which was impossible. Sarai and Sarah are closely related names, meaning princess or queen. And this is an appropriate name for the mother of nations and kings. And it marks a, a new stage in her life. And the change in name will be a reminder to her of that as well. So they're breaking with the past. And it's a reminder of God's promise that will take place in the near future, and that it's really a miraculous fulfillment. Now, Abraham's response here is difficult for us to interpret. It seems a little bit strange. But as he hears this, what does he do? Verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face. Now, he fell on his face when God began to speak with him. Now he falls on his face again, but what's he do? He laughs. And we're not sure if this is an inward laugh or an outward laugh, because he said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old, and shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And he kind of chuckles. He laughs. And we're not exactly sure how to take that, because... Expositors are divided on what this means, what the intent is here. Is this a laugh of unbelief or derision? Is he thinking how impossible uh, this all appears? Uh, A man that's 100, a woman who's 90 are going to have a child. That's just kind of ridiculous. But if all this had happened to you, what would your response have been? Well, some say Abraham's lacking in faith again, and all this is incredulous to him. Others say he's responding in happiness, even though the promise seems impossible. But when we take into consideration Romans chapter 4, we won't take the time to go there, but in verses 17 and 20, there doesn't seem to be much indication that uh, uh, he doubted God. He may have wondered how this all could take place. He may have been puzzled. But it says he responded to the Lord in faith. And when we take that into consideration, we would say, well, it's not a laugh of unbelief or impossibility, but measured with the incredulous, but still believing that God can do it. One commentator might be correct. 
when he says, the promise was so immensely great that he sank in adoration to the ground and so immensely paradoxical that he could not help but laughing. So I tend to believe that Abraham is not responding in a way where he's ridiculing the situation, but that he's just so awestruck and amazed uh, that it causes him to break out in a laugh. But then what do we make of verse 18 when Abraham actually speaks? Now, of course, the Lord knows what's going on in his mind. But in verse 18, he says, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And again, we have to go by the way we interpret uh, the first response. If it's a response that's incredulous and really not believing, then he might be saying, well, uh, may Ishmael be the one who gets the promise and who's the promised son. That makes more sense to me. But if we believe he's responding in faith, it must be a declaration. Well, what's going to happen to Ishmael? May he also be blessed. May he also live before you. And that seems to be the way that we ought to take it. Um, So the Lord, again, is able to do what seems to be impossible. As we look at verses 19 to 22, he affirms his word, though it does seem like, humanly speaking, it can't be performed. The Lord responds and he says, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. So get any idea out of your mind that anything other than what I'm telling you right now is going to be uh, happening. Sarah is going to be the one to bear a child, even though she's 90. And I'm even going to tell you the name of the child. The name of the child is going to be Isaac. Now that's uh, pretty important too. Because guess what Isaac means? Isaac means he laughs. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Maybe it's a little bit of humor on God's part. Okay, you're laughing. Uh, God, God knew the attitude of the laugh. But I'm going to have the laugh, last laugh. You're going to name your son Isaac. So every time that you call Isaac's name, you're going to remember that you laughed. And now you're going to laugh in joy because this is actually what's going to happen. And uh, later on, we're going to find out Sarah laughed too. But the Lord wasn't quite happy with her. We'll find out about that later. So this reveals to all that the promise is totally independent of human involvement. It's impossible for Abram and Sarah to have a child, but God's going to perform a miracle and bring about his word. The Lord also confirms, though, that he will bless Ishmael. He says that the 12 princes will issue from him. Again, the the fulfillment of the nations coming from Abraham. But the promise of the seed will be established through Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear, once again mentioning that. So finally, God has answered Abraham's faith, given him assurance, and said this is going to be fulfilled in the next year. So it's all coming to fruition. It's all actually happening. And can you imagine the joy that they felt in anticipation of that promise finally coming about? God's always faithful to his word and often proves it in miraculous ways. Now the last thing that we see here 
in verses 23 to 27. The faithful respond to God's word with immediate obedience. And again, Abraham responds here immediately, verse 23, the same day he goes out and he does what God commanded him to do. That's an indication of faith. He believed what God had to say. He proved it by going out and doing it. Obedience is the work or the outcome of faith. So another indication that Abraham believed God. And in this way, he shows his willingness to keep the covenant according to God's command, and he proves that he's walking with the Lord and being blameless. Can we say we respond to God's word in the same way? How often do we hear the word, but we fail to understand the word, or we fail to do what we know we should do? When we hear the word and have no intention of keeping it, well, then we're like those in verse 14 who put themselves in harm's way because we're saying no to what God has said. We're, we're disobeying, disobeying God, and we're putting ourselves in the way of chastisement when we do that. We also should recognize that on this day, when his whole household, including himself, 100 years old just about, that this operation of circumcision was painful. And sometimes when... The word of God is given to us, and obeying it is painful. We may have to give up something. We have to quit doing something. And to obey the word of God, not necessarily physically painful, but spiritually it can be painful to do the right thing. It can cost us something. And the Lord Jesus says that's what discipleship's all about. It's going to cost you something. It's going to be painful at times. Well, obedience to God's word is indicative of a circumcised heart. I think we see that all the way through here. And the circumcision of heart, the cutting off uh, to uh, God, signifies a number of things. Our salvation and our faith and all God's promises are an indication of the circumcised heart. Our purity, our separation from the world, being cut off from that which is sinful, that's an indication of a pure heart before God. And our faith in a spiritual progeny is an indication of this separation to God, that as we raise our children, our grandchildren from the Lord, they will be saved and they will grow up to serve him. We do everything we can to assure that that happens. May we always be thankful for the grace of God in giving us his promises, bringing us into the new covenant And may God help us to always respond to the Lord in reverence and faith and obedience like Abraham did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're again thankful today for the word of God, the Old Testament word of God, as it conveys to us the faith and obedience 
of Abraham. Lord, uh, what he experienced that day was hard to believe, yet the New Testament tells us he did believe, and his actions show us that he, uh, he believed because he obeyed your command. Lord, help us to be like that as we walk in the new covenant, again, a covenant of grace, but a covenant where we have responsibilities to walk with you and be blameless like Abraham did. Lord, help us to be uh, submissive to your word, to be humbled by it, to show our faith by being obedient to it. And we just pray, Lord, you'll help us uh, to be like Father Abraham in our faith and our walk with you. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.